0: Empire Lines uncovers the unexpected, often two-way flows of empires through art. Interdisciplinary thinkers use individual artworks as artifacts of imperial exchange, revealing the how and why of the monolith empire.
1: Well, I do have a little I do have a little bit of quilt on my chair, I should have
0: it. Yes, that's amazing! I was just
1: in G's Ben last week. So this was a little gift that was given to me by by Mary Margaret Petway. Everyone's name's sort of Mary yes. or Margaret
0: <laughs> or Loretta. It's, it, it's an interesting. In this episode, Raina Lampkinsfelder, curator at the Soul's Grown Deep Foundation, weaves together the histories of Black artists who stayed in Southern America during the Great Migration like the quilt makers of Gee's Bend. Hi, my name is Raina Lampkins-Filder and
1: I'm the curator for the Souls Grown Deep Foundation and the curator for the exhibition at the Royal Academy called Souls Grown Deep Like the Rivers, Black Artists from the American South.
0: The exhibition focuses on Black artists who stayed in the Southeastern US during the Great Migration in the 20th century. But they also share a lot of personal relationships. Names crop up time and again and it starts and ends with women. Can you tell me about Sarah Lockett, a quilter, and how she connects so many of the artists in the show? It's interesting because Sarah Lockett was a relation
1: of both uh, Thornton Dial, uh, multidisciplinary artist, He was an amazing draftsman, uh, an amazing assembler of works, painter, sculptor, and he and Ronald Lockett, who was his much younger cousin, who also he was the kind of artistic mentor of, both of them shared Sarah Lockett as a relation, and she was very important in their lives. So not only Sarah, but I would say quilt making uh, in general, you can find that there are both aesthetic relationships and also personal relationships with quilt makers that one sees. So Sarah Lockett, uh, there are two works in the exhibition that refer specifically to her one by Thornton Dial called The Tree of Life and the Image of Old Things, this intricate root sculpture that is relating to Sarah Lockett's life. It was made kind of in homage to her after her death and has its own sort of complicated genealogy of that sort of complicated family tree that Thornton Dial had with her. And then Ronald Lockett uh, has a work in the exhibition called Sarah Lockett's Roses, and it kind of assumes the form of the patchwork quilts of the region, but instead he uses salvaged metal sheets, which were provided to him by Thornton Dial, instead of the fabric scraps that one would generally see in the patchwork quilts of the area. So kind of adapting uh quilt making to his own kind of visual practice also in the exhibition which does you're correct it does look at sort of familial relationships as well as relationships that are more kind of aesthetically and creatively formed between artists but also artists like Mary Lee Bendolph who is uh, quite a renowned G's Bend quilt maker But Mary Lee Bendolph became an influence to Thornton Dial, who created a work, which is also in the exhibition, called Mrs. Bendolph, which again kind of uses fabric and sort of uh, textile reminiscent, in a sense, to what one might see in quilt making. But then again, he adapts it to his style of sort of assemblage. And then Mary Lee Bendolph herself, she created a work called an intaglio print, That's called To Honour Mr. Dial. And so you can see that there's a lot of back and forth. And certainly, you know, Mary Lee Bendolph, her daughter, Essie Bendolph, is also in the exhibition uh, as another quilt artist from G's Bend. And you can see some aesthetic relationships between their work as well. So, yes, there is a kind of leitmotif of women being kind of influential in the exhibition and certainly within uh, the work that's in the souls grown deep collection which this exhibition explores
0: materially aesthetically thematically and we'll come back to those textiles later on but i want to touch on something that you've brought up in discussion recently with bonnie greer about how these works really challenge not just our ideas about art education and how these people were schooled by their local communities and these networks, but also their use of material and media. And the exhibition really celebrates the artists' ingenious use of found objects from berry juice to grass stains and animal skulls. Can you tell me about the sculptures of Lonnie Holly? Yes, it's true. The kind of light motif that has informed the selections
1: of work in this exhibition. I kind of say it's about reclamation, um, a reclamation of material, of history, of land, of space, and of one's own narrative. And that is so often expressed in the work of these artists through this use of these recycled and found materials, which were both kind of mass-produced and organic. You have roots and you have, you know, scrap metal. So artists, you know, like Lonnie Holly, but certainly the majority of the artists in the exhibition, really were interested in reimagining these salvaged materials, whether it be extra house paint or worn clothing or disused furniture or bits of wire. And that really arose out of this necessity due to a lack of economic resources or access to more conventional art supplies. So artists really had to make do with what they had. But their kind of aesthetic intentions really informed their selection of these objects that were cast off with this idea that found objects are really imbued with the energy of their past uses and their history is embedded within the materials themselves. And so with these artists, the things that have been thrown away or ignored have been reclaimed or reformed or exalted. And so with artist Lonnie Hawley, His piece, Keeping a Record of it, Harmful Music, is one of those that really merges Holly's interests as an artist, as a musician, and as a social commentator, and as a kind of archivist and collector of the sort of detritus that is left behind that he will collect and then reconsider and then present it to us in, in a new way. And so that work, you know, in the 1940s and 50s in America, black music was considered a threat to white America with white parents, you know, sort of fearful that their children would be corrupted by exposure to black music. So. Here we see kind of Lonnie's play on this as he literally kind of keeps a record of the sort of racist assumption so often heaped upon black self-expression and doing that through this reclamation of these objects thrown away, a disused turntable, a broken record, and then an animal skull, which in some ways is kind of like a threat but also kind of goes back to his interests in the natural world, in the environment. So it's both a kind of death and also a rebirth and a comment on that.
0: Absolutely. And I think you really see the two way flows as well as artists drawing from their local environments. They're also contributing to them and building them themselves literally in things like their yard shows. Absolutely. And in paintings that end up being nailed to buildings across Chicago. Well, the yard show is a
1: really interesting phenomena and it's a
0: very kind of Southern
1: idea. This was something that was begun in the 19th century. And the term describes these large scale site-specific art installations that were constructed on the properties of homes of these artists. And these yard shows really provided the artists a platform Artists who were born in the Jim Crow era could express themselves freely and on their own terms. I mean, it's on their own property. You're not going to necessarily tell someone what they should say on their own home. So it really became this exercise of self-determination and a really this grand artistic proclamation that had been denied their enslaved ancestors. You see a lot of these works in less urban areas where there's more grounds, but Purvis Young he really created one of the most significant examples of this urban yard show, sort of still drawing from found materials, found wood, but being based in Miami, very much an urban environment, he created a yard show that instead of being spread out on a ground, it actually had to be affixed to walls. And so beginning in 1972, he created this public display where he nailed his paintings to the walls of abandoned buildings that were running along Goodbread Alley in Overtown in Miami which was a predominantly black area in the city now young was inspired by the street murals in Detroit and in Chicago particularly the wall of respect which was erected in Chicago in 1967 that was created by artists who are part of the black art movement which advocated for politically engaged art that addressed the African-American experience. And so his work very much to those themes. Young's paintings, as they're kind of nailed to the wall, they function as this public epic visual poem of the black experience that is you know, visible to not only people in the community, but those passing by from the newly constructed Interstate 95. You know, the yard show or the urban yard show, the wall that Purvis Young created, Uh, really was about that communication with the public, that ability to, if you are not being lauded in a gallery, you still are creating these immersive, massive solo exhibitions on your own.
0: As you mentioned, so many of these artists were very politically engaged. I also loved Mary T. Smith's paintings on corrugated metal that said phrases like, we all want a job. And the sculptor Archie Byron was childhood friends with Martin Luther King. I want to come on and talk about the quilt makers of G's Bend, though, because they dominate the final room. Can you tell me about how they came to work together? You know, Gee's
1: Bend is a very isolated, geographically isolated black settlement, and it's deeply, deeply rural. Um, And so it's on the banks of the Alabama River, and it's positioned in the middle of like a U-shaped curve in the river, which is where we kind of get the bend and the history of Gee's Bend is rather interesting in that there was a plantation there that was run by the enslaver Mark Petway, and we do see that to this day. After the American Civil War, the black community mostly remained as sharecroppers under white landlords. Later, um, owning their own homes and owning land, which is one of the reasons why so many stayed. And so the majority of the people who live in Geese Bend are descended from those formerly enslaved by Mark Petway. And so many of them still kind of bear Petway's name. In the 30s, we saw a greater home and land ownership by the residents of Geese Bend and the very nearby community called Alberta. You see that because of one's um, own autonomy based on home and land ownership, it allowed for there to be generations of people who want to remain on their land and within what they've owned. And so that has allowed for a constancy that is perhaps rather unusual. And because of Jisben being so geographically isolated and the community being quite tight knit, There was obviously a lot of interaction around quilt making, which sort of started from the mid-19th century. This area has given rise to over five generations of Black quilt makers, and so this quilt making tradition was constantly passed on from mother to daughter, aunt to niece, from a cousin or a family friend, and porches and kitchens and just sort of gatherings uh, really became that place for transferring artistic skills and sort of was an alternative to a conventional studio or, or lecture hall. And in a sense, it's sort of impromptu, although now I would say quite uh, established, a uh, continually operating textile academy was formed. And there's a particular sort of eccentricity almost to the pattern creation, to the aesthetics, to the use of recycled fabric, which really defines a lot of the work of the bend um, that you see in the works by the artists there. That kind of ethos of recycled material, of using these kind of scraps of one's lived lives, and then reinterpreting it, they are happy to, you know, maybe start with a pattern, like a housetop pattern, which is something that is favored patterned in G's Bend because it's incredibly simple. You have a small center square and then it's bordered by larger and larger squares. But what folks in the bend really love about this pattern is that it allows for endless formal experimentation and compositional flexibility, because at least in the mind of of the benders, you're permitted to kind of bend, to break, to kind of stagger this idea, this notion of the housetop. And so it becomes something quite often incredibly abstract, because the structure really allows for this kind of visual exchange between the work's edges and what is inside. And the housetop quilt is kind of more of an approach toward form and construction than a strict pattern. And so this kind of quilt making ethos, that's something that is definitely passed on through generations and generations. It's kind of important to show a little bit of your own style of who you are, your
0: individual interests, um, your own family history uh, in the quilts. And I think the reason I'm so drawn to these textiles is because they really challenge that binary between domestic function and artworks. And also the push and pull style of weaving really speaks to the call and response of different kinds of music. And it really feeds into that sense of conversation.
1: Absolutely. I mean, quilts are interesting because they're both an individual expression, but also a communal conversation. So often a quilt, of course, is one artist's work or another artist's work, but within that you have maybe the kids before you're permitted to, you know, play after you come home from school, you're sort of obligated to find the little cotton fluffs that you'd find in the fields and remove the seeds and the little twigs from it. So that could be used as the kind of batting material that goes between the top and the bottom of the quilt for sort of cushioning and additional warmth. You know, so already just in the lived lives of people, collaboration was there and that intergenerational conversation was already in existence. And then you would be with maybe a friend or a family member or a few family members and you work together to piece and to sew and to follow the lines that one has directed you to follow. So there was that kind of communal interaction as well in the creation of the work. Additionally, the church in G.S. Ben is important uh, when you have that call and response, when you have the minister saying something and you respond back. It is that kind of individual, communal, spiritual interaction that does take place, and it is kind of seen in the work But also just this mesmeric quality to the quilts, having a certain sort of visual dynamism. There are a number of churches, but certainly the Pleasant Grove Baptist Church is one that is more known in that Martin Luther King Jr. gave a sermon there in 1965, really encouraging people in G's Bend to, you know, march for voting rights. And so many of the women uh, who were quilt makers in the area became voting rights activists as well. In 1966, 60 women came together from Gee's Bend and Alberta, the neighboring town, to establish the Freedom Quilting Bee, which was a cooperative managed by quilt maker and community activist Estelle Witherspoon. And the Freedom Quilting Bee became one of the first Black-owned businesses in the country certainly by this time, the quilt making tradition and the unusual dynamism and, and spirit of the quilt had begun to be known in the United States. Not widely known, but uh, it was definitely appreciated. And so the establishment of the Freedom Quilting Bee um, allowed for another economic alternative for people living in Gee's Bend. And so this was an opportunity for the women there to sell some of their works and to uh, feed back economically into the community. And in 1972, the Freedom Quilting Bee was commissioned by the American retailer Sears Roebuck to fabricate corduroy pillow shams for their stores nationwide. And corduroy was a material that was rarely used by the quilters at that time. And there were many quilt makers who didn't want to participate in this contract, in this commission, because they felt that it sort of restricted their individual artistic styles to make these pillow covers. But what was amazing about this commission, and which you see also in quilts from that time and even to today, recycling what has already been recycled, the corduroy scraps and leftovers from the pillow shams were recycled by the women at the end of the day, and shared among the community to be used for quilt making. So this is another way where there's that call and response collaborative impulse that runs throughout the area. And so while the pillow shams were just normal things that had to be done in a certain way to be sent to stores, the remnants were used to amazing effect. And there were colors that came from that commission as well, colors like gold, sort of an avocado tangerine and a cherry red. And you see that in one of the quilts that's in the exhibition by Flora Moore that was done in the 70s around that time. And you also see it in the work of Marlene Bennett-Jones. She has the most recent quilt made in 2021 that's in the exhibition. And she actually repurposed corduroy fabric that was in her mother's quilts that were made decades ago. So the Freedom Quilting Bee really had a tremendous impact for, uh, for a certain period of time, economically in the area, as far as also kind of politically creating one's own sort of economic autonomy, as well as being a place to sort of galvanize civic action. Now, in fact, the Freedom Quilting Bee original building, we've worked with the community to kind of refurbish a bit and to make it uh, usable again. Now there's an organization called the Freedom Quilting Bee Legacy, and that does now a lot of work in G S Bend, and we work very closely with them, acknowledging that the history and the legacy of the Freedom Quilting Bee and its importance in the area, as well as to be another place in the Bend that people can explore the history, come together. So it still is living. You know, I think some people conceive of Gee's Bend as being a place lost in time, the sort of fossil of a place. But in fact, it is continually growing and thriving. To this day, and the quilt making tradition is just as interesting, just as kind of eye opening as it has always been.
0: And the traditions live on in so many ways because these textiles featured on US postage stamps and they were the first ever to be devoted to living artists. Most of these textiles, though, are on view in the UK for the first time, and some are now in the collection of the Tate Modern in London. I want to ask you've previously described yourself as an activist curator. What does that mean to you?
1: I'm not there as a voice for the artists, and through their own work they speak volumes about who they are much better than I possibly could. But because of the nature of the work, um, because of my workings with museums and with galleries and with academics, you know, in a way I am an advocate for their inclusion in the American art historical canon and, and in the canon writ large. And also for people to view these artists' work, not as a risk, but rather a missing piece, a missing chapter in how we understand artistic practice. And so sometimes you need to have (laughs) apparently an advocate to have people maybe refocus their lens and point it towards the South uh, and towards artistic and aesthetic traditions that so often have been ignored due to lack of access to spaces of display, due to socioeconomic challenges, due to unapologetic racism. It's not just about putting together exhibitions for me, it's about helping to tell the story, helping to spread the good news about the amazing artistic traditions that are coming out of these areas, that are coming out of the black belt so that they can be enjoyed by all. And so also We can have a better understanding uh, and be more honest about what true aesthetic production and the artistic canon
0: really is. Raina, thank you ever so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed uh, speaking with you. Souls Grown Deep Like the Rivers, Black Artists from the American South, runs at the Royal Academy in London until the 18th of June, 2023. You'll find all the links in the episode notes. Empire Lines is produced by Jelena Sofranievich. For more episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.